Well, we are excited kicking off a brand new series this weekend called Thrones, and we're going to be looking at the book of Judges, uh, going through that, really the better part, or really the entirety of the summer. How'd you like that bumper? All those things in there actually took place uh, in the book of Judges. We're going to be covering chapters 1 and 2 uh, this weekend as we launch this, this, uh, this series, and just right from the get-go, it is a bloody, murderous, butchering just slaughter book in the, in the Bible. In fact, most of the Old Testament is actually like that. Uh, and so as we like to say here at Valley Christian Church, uh, that, that uh, really in the auditorium here is PG-13, and we're really trying our best to make it PG-13 because there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's really rated R, as we like to say, real life. And uh, we, we think that Jesus, uh, God didn't sugarcoat it, Jesus didn't sugarcoat it, and we shouldn't sugarcoat it either. And, and so uh, real excited about this as we talk about thrones. And as we kick off this series, I want to ask a couple of questions that I think probably many of us can relate to, and it's going to kind of set the framework uh, uh, for this series that we jump in, specifically this weekend, want to talk about consistently inconsistent. And that's really kind of sums up these first two chapters uh, in the book of Judges, consistently inconsistent. So here's a couple of questions. Uh, have you ever wondered, why do I go up and down so much spiritually? Why does it seem like all of a, I'm going real strong and then it's just like, wham! It just seems like, you know, one step forward, two steps back in terms of my spiritual growth? Or what about this question? Why are there some sins, no matter how hard I try to get rid of, I just can't seem to put behind me? I'm not going to ask her to show of hands of that tonight, but I'll tell you what, my hand's up. I think if all of us are honest, our hands would be up if I asked for that, but I'm not asking. How about this one? Why do I have so little joy spiritually? Why is it that I have so little joy spiritually? Why does it seem like other Christians have it all together and, and they're just smiling and happy all the time and, and, and my spiritual journey feels like a roller coaster? Why is that? Never wondered that? How, how about that? Can I see? You ever wondered that or is it just me? Okay, uh, a, a few of us. Here's the thing, first of all, that I've discovered as a pastor of 26 years. Those people that have it all together and it seems like just always just joyful and all, they're phonies. They're fake. They're lying because that's not real. That, that is just not real. One of the things I've learned not only about myself but about other people as a pastor is this. We all have stuff. I've got stuff. You've got stuff. We all have issues. And we're always going to have stuff that we're dealing with and that we're working on and working through until Jesus comes and like sets it all straight once and for all. And so uh, we don't encourage people to be plastic. And Jesus never did that because you know what? You can't help a plastic person. You've got to be honest and you've got to be real about what's going inside. And God loves us just the way we are. And he loves us enough not to leave us that way. And so we're all involved with an inside job. God is working in our lives. And I want to give you a chart because this whole idea of kind of ups and downs and roller coaster relationship with God and, and commitment and faith and sometimes doubts and all this, this is exactly why this book of Judges is so important. 
Because what we're going to discover is this. This isn't a bunch of stories that God wanted collected for you and me just to kind of look at and like, man, that's awful. Oh, gosh, that is so terrible. I'm so glad I wasn't alive back then. But there are actually lessons to be learned. The book of Judges is really uh, it's like a cautionary tale. Is that we can read the book of Judges, understand what's happening here in the period in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and we don't have to repeat the same mistakes. It's written for our good. And so let me show you a chart that kind of charts what, what, what happens over and over and over again in the book of Judges. First of all, the, the, the people, God's people, rebel against him. They're, they're like, you know what, we, we, just, we don't want to do it, we don't want to serve you anymore, so they rebel against him. And then God says, that's not what I want, I don't want it to be that way, but it, then there's retribution. He says, okay, if you're going to turn your back on me, I'm no longer going to protect you. If you don't have nothing to be, do with me, I, I, I'm no longer going to look out for you. And he goes, nations are going to come in, and, and, and inhabitants in the land are going to come, and they're going to destroy you, and they're going to enslave you. And then what happens is, as soon as things get really awful, what do they do? I know none of us do this, do we? Then they all of a sudden repent and get right with God. I always say this to pastors, we joke about it, hard times are good for business. They really are. 9-11, we were packed right after 9-11. I mean, like everyone's like, we got to get to church. But then time goes on. And we just settle back into our old habits and our old stuff again. And so they rebel, then there's retribution, then they repent, and then God sends a rescuer. And that's what that word judge means. Don't think about it like a, a, a judicial position in a courtroom. Think about it when you hear the word judge, when it says God raised up a judge, think of a hero, a deliverer. That's what the book of Judges is all about, a, a series of men and women that God raised up to rescue his people, and they called them judges. They weren't illegal at all. It wasn't a position. It wasn't a, a robe and a gavel. They were heroes that rescued God's people, and then you know what happened? They rebelled again. And we see this cycle over and over and over and over in the book of Judges. Now, a little history of the book of Judges. The book of Judges takes place in terms of chronologically. How many of you know the Bible is not even written chronologically the way it's ordered? It's not chronological. Some parts are, some parts are not. This is right after the Exodus. God chose Moses and led, used Moses to lead the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And then for 40 years, they went around in the desert. And God even said to Moses, because of his disobedience, you're not going to go. You're not going to lead the people into the promised land. I choose your, your, your uh, protege, Joshua. And so Joshua leads the nation, leads the people of God into the promised land, and they begin to drive out the inhabitants of the land that God had promised to them. The book of Judges starts right at the end of Joshua's death. Joshua dies. All those who actually had been the last generation that had been in the wilderness and had crossed over, they were born in the wilderness and they crossed over 
there were only two that were all the way back from Egypt, Joshua and Caleb. A generation was born over those 40 years in the wilderness, and they crossed over the Jordan into the promised land. And just as soon as Joshua dies, everybody turns from God. Everyone does, and starts this cycle. And you'll see this over and over as we work our way through this uh, over the next few weeks. Rebel, retribution, God's like, okay, okay, if that's the way you want it. Then they repent, and then he raises up a rescuer, a judge. And, and there's so much that we can learn from this. I, I want to give you kind of, as I'm introducing uh, this series about thrones, and you'll understand the significance of that idea of thrones in just a minute, I want to give you quickly five key ideas in the book of Judges. Five key ideas that is kind of like the writer of the book just goes kind of back to this idea over and over and over again. Five keys. Now, if you'll take out your Valley app, you can fill in the blanks. Uh, by the way, was informed today, we've had over 900 downloads of the Valley app in the last four months. Isn't that amazing? 900 downloads. And, and, and so people are loving it and using it to fill in the blanks, and it saves it for you. And you can actually look up the Bible passages as well, so, so you can follow right along. Five key ideas in the book of Judges. Here's the first key idea. God continually offers his grace grace to people who don't deserve it, or seek it, or even appreciate it after they've been saved by it. God continually still offers his grace to those, I don't want, I don't want anything to do with you anymore, God. And then come to their senses, and he's like, okay, I'll have you back. Over and over and over again, God continually offers his grace to people who don't deserve it. And I don't know about you, but that's, just, that's not just Old Testament times. That's like 2016 Greg Williamson time. I don't deserve God's grace, but he continually offers it. You don't deserve God's grace, but he continually offers it. So we can learn a lot about God in this book of Judges, because after all, don't ever forget this, even in the Old Testament, he's like the star of the show. It's all about him. It's all about him. The, the second thing that's so important, key idea in the book of Judges is this, God wants lordship over every area of our lives, not just some. He wants it all. He, he wants everything in our life. He wants to be Lord over everything. Not just part, not just one or two hours a week. He wants to be the absolute center, the number one priority in our lives. And over and over and over again, we'll see that God has a real great way of making that point throughout the book of Judges. God wants the lordship over every area of our lives, not just some. Here's the third key idea in the book of Judges. We all have a need for continual spiritual renewal in our lives. Every one of us has this need to kind of just take a moment, disconnect, and, and, and allow the set-aside time for God to renew our faith, renew our spirit, re re renew our relationship with Him. Very, very important. And, and over this series, we're going to talk about some real practical ways to do it. There's a particular time of year that, that for the last 26 years as a pastor that I set aside that is just a time where I replenish and refresh and renew my relationship with Jesus Christ. 
and is what's kept me going. Did you, you know that the dropout rate for pastors is 90%? 90% of pastors uh, drop out, only 10% retire as pastors. I think this is a big key. And that's why I got a lot of mo. I, I, I mean, I got a lot of tread left on the tire. Because we're not even, we renew. It's so important. We all have a need to continual spiritual renewal in our lives. Fourth key fact in the book of Judges is this. We all need a true Savior to which all other human saviors point through both their flaws and their strengths. God raises up this man. God raises up this woman in the book of Judges. And what we're going to find is this. They are so far from perfect. They're flawed and they have strengths and they have real weaknesses. In fact, next week we're going to talk better than you pictured. And we're going to look at some of the, begin to look at these characters as we get into Judges chapter 3. And we see they're flawed and they have strengths. But, but ultimately, these human rescuers, or if I could put it this way, these human heroes must point us to the ultimate hero, the ultimate rescuer, the perfect and flawless Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. And that being said, if I'm a real servant of God, I will never point you to me. I will point you to him. And it's a big lesson that, that we have to learn in this world, not to put people on pedestals, not to put people on thrones. Only one deserves to be on the throne, and that's Jesus Christ, who is the perfect and flawless Savior. And then the fifth point that's so important, key idea in the book of Judges is this, God is in charge no matter what it looks like. God is in control. God is in charge no matter what it looks like. And when it doesn't make sense to me and it doesn't make sense to you, we can, we can go back to the truth that we find in this great book in the Bible. God is still in charge. God is still in control, no matter what it looks like. Now, the first two chapters that we're going to look at uh, in our time together uh, are Israel's spiritual struggles, uh, and, and it's recounted and it's explained, and, and I think, and I want to encourage you to read those first two chapters on your own. We don't even have time to go through them like verse by verse by verse, because it's lengthy, and it's bloody, and it's butcher and it's massacre and it's like please stop and we're just getting started I mean it's just nasty stuff we're going to look at a good section of it but but I just encourage you to read it on your own because what you find is Joshua dies and then the people do whatever they want and they're looking for God to help them overcome their enemies and he's like that's the way you want it that's the way you got it and they fail and many people suffer devastating loss because they turned their back on God. They, 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 they had to pay the price for that. We'll see a lot of ourselves in here. But, but what I want to do in these first two chapters is give you three core principles that really will shape the rest of the book. In other words, it's like these three things that we see in these first two chapters when we look at Gideon, when, when we look... Uh, 
you, you know, at Deborah, when we look at all these other Samson, when we look at all these heroes, all these judges, it's like the same thing is being repeated. These three things over and over and over again. It's a tremendous lens that we can read this through. Here's the first principle uh, in Judges chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. And we don't take time to read it, but I encourage you to. Small areas of disobedience lead to big disasters. Small areas of disobedience. Small areas of compromise lead to big disasters. This is so true if we think back on our lives, when we think back on the lives of other people that we know. I, I've heard it said this way before. On the road of life, it's not the blowout of the tire that ultimately messes you up. It's the slow leak. It's the slow leak. It's the slow compromise. It, it's those little things that we think, oh, it's okay. I'm not hurting anybody. We know it's not what God wants in our life, but it's like, uh, it, it's all right. I'm not hurting anyone. But one of the major themes that's in this first two chapters and is repeated over and over and over, small areas of disobedience lead to big disasters. Big disasters. And sometimes, and we'll see this in the book of Judges with, the, with these here. sometimes when we think, it's just me, I'm not hurting anybody, what we find in the book of Judges is this, the people that get hurt the most are not the one with the small areas of disobedience. It's their families around them. It's the collateral damage that happens to those around. And we thought, it's okay. And God says, that's not okay. That's not okay. And so this is a major thing. See, here's the thing. You know, as we look at the scripture, you know, God says, this is, this is what my best is for you. This is what I want for you. And, and we look at that and we say, man, that's so hard. You know, and we say, I, I can't. I, I can't live that life that you want me to live, God. I, I, I can't live a, a, a separated life. I can't live a holy life. And you know what? You know how God hears that? Not I can't. God hears that as I won't. And there's a big difference between I'm unable to and I refuse to. But see, God gives you and me the power of the Holy Spirit. So anything that he ever asks you to do, anything that he ever asks me to do, he gives us the power to obey. What a great job that is. What a great offer that is. So when we say we can't, we say we can't when God says won't. God, I can't do that. And he says, Greg, you mean you won't do it? You mean you refuse to do it? You mean... I bankrupted heaven for you, Greg. I, I gave my son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for your sins, that you'd be forgiven. And, and then when you receive Christ as your Savior, Greg, then, then I filled you with the Holy Spirit. You were born again. You've got the, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you're saying, I choose to set that aside. And I refuse to do what you want me to. I refuse to get my temper under control. 
I refuse to think the thoughts you want me to think, God, instead of the thoughts I want to think. I refuse to trust you, to have faith in you. I choose instead worry and anxiety and fear. I can't do it. And God says, Greg, you mean you won't do it? You refuse to do it. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it puts it this way. Talking about temptation. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. What? That means every time you and I face the temptation to say, God, I can't, we're actually saying, God, I refuse. God, I won't resist this temptation. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, listen to what God says, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. When I say to God, that's too hard. I can't do that. He hears that and knows the truth is, that's too hard. I won't do it. I refuse to do it. There's three basic kind of general areas that I would say of can't excuses of disobedience. Three areas in our lives that a lot of times we just like, we say we can't, but really what it means is we won't. We refuse to do what you want us to do, God. Because remember, this point, small areas of disobedience lead to big disasters. Three areas of can't excuses of disobedience. The first one I would put is this, is forgiveness. I can't forgive them. God, I just can't. What is that really? I refuse. I won't forgive them. I won't forgive them. God, I just can't do it. You don't know how bad it hurt me. You don't know, how, you don't know what they did. And God says, number one, I do know. Number two, it wasn't as bad as what happened to my son. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so we say, I can't. And he said, you mean you won't, Greg? You won't. Matthew chapter 18, verse 35, Jesus is talking about forgiveness. He's talking about unforgiveness. He's talking about when we hold an offense and bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. And, and, and he says, God will deal with us. In Matthew 18, 35, it says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. When I say, God, it's too hard, I can't. He said, you mean you won't? You mean you won't? You mean you refuse? Because, Greg, I'm giving you the grace, I'm giving you the mercy, I'm giving you the power of the Holy Spirit and you're saying, I'd rather leave all that on the shelf and hold on to my unforgiveness. And it's a can't excuse. When it really means, I won't. Second area I, I think of can't excuses for disobedience is this, telling the truth. Just straight up telling the truth. Just being honest with God and being honest with other people. I can't tell them the truth. It's going to hurt their feelings. So I'm going to tell just, it's, it was just a little white lie. Did you know God doesn't see colors of lies? I don't even know where that came from. It's a white lie, it's a black lie, you know. 
I just can't tell them. If, if I tell the truth, you know what? There could be some bad repercussions, some bad consequences. I can't. And God says, Greg, you mean you won't? You won't trust me that if you're honest and a man of your word, that I'll honor you and I'll take care of you. You won't trust me is what you're saying. Telling the truth. Just being honest. What you see is what you get. Speaking the truth in love, it doesn't mean being abrasive, but that, that, we're, that we're people of our word, that our yes is yes and our no is no. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 puts it this way. Instead, in contrast to the way the world does things, we will speak the truth in love. There it is. Growing in every way more and more like Christ. Why? Because he wa God wants us to grow more like Christ because he always spoke the truth. He never told one little white lie. Growing more and more, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. He's our head. He's our leader. He's our example. And so what does that mean? We, we, God wants to transform our lives to become more like him. And what is one of the main characteristics of Christ? He spoke the truth in love. Also in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, it says this. So then get rid of lies. Get rid of it. Speak the truth to each other because we're all members of the same body. I, I, I can't speak the truth. And God says, you won't? You refuse to? You won't trust me with the outcomes and knowing that, that really I'm the one that can take care of you? And so everything has to be kind of like diplomatic and you got to just smooth over, and, and there's all kinds of stuff bubbling up under the surface. And God says, and you're okay with that? God says, I'm not okay with that. That's a slow, a small act of disobedience that ultimately is going to lead to a big disaster in your life. And I don't want that for you. The third area I think that is really easy for us to make I can't type of excuses for our disobedience is when it comes to temptation itself. I can't resist this. I can't stop doing this. We say can't. God hears won't. Because with God, all things are possible. And so when we say we can't, what we are saying is, I don't want your help. I really want to cling to this. I refuse your help. I refuse your strength and your mercy and your power. See, sin has not only an addictive quality to it, it has a deceptive quality. That, that not only does it make us addicted to it, it also lies to us and says, you'll never be free. God can't really help you. There's no way you'll ever be able to put the past in the past. It's the deceptiveness of sin. And it says, you can't do it, Greg. 
you'll always be like this. There's no way you'll ever change. And God says, hold on just a minute. If I say you're free, you're free indeed. Because the New Testament tells us for whom the Son, Jesus Christ, sets free is free indeed. That's what we talked about last year in our baggage series. Just dropping the baggage. That, that we don't have to continue to fall over and over and over again. Again, we just looked at it, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, but the second part of it there, uh, where it actually says, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, but when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Think about that for just a minute. Every temptation to sin that you and I will ever face, God's like, I've got an escape hatch. Choose to use it or refuse it. Every time. Every time. And, and so, this is a big theme all throughout the book of Judges. Small areas of disobedience lead to big disasters. Here, here's the second big theme that we find in the first two chapters as well, uh, but also repeated over and over. We choose between the God who saves and the God who enslaves. We choose between the God who saves and the gods that enslave. Notice the gods are a lowercase g. We choose. Are, are, are we going to put on the throne of our life the God who saves or gods that enslave us? We make that choice. Uh, let's drop in now in Judges chapter 2, verse 12. And after all kinds of uh, bloodbath in chapter 1 of them trying to take uh, uh, the land that God had given to them, Joshua is dead. Look what happens in verse 12. And I want to read this passage and then we'll kind of uh, explain it a little bit. Judges chapter 2, verse 12. It says, They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. Think about this for just a minute. This is crazy, isn't it? Their grandparents saw the Nile River turn to blood. Their, their, their grandma and grandpa saw the death angel come into Egypt and kill every firstborn who had not applied the blood of a sacrificial lamb to the doorpost. Their grandparents. And they're like, nah, we'll go serve Baal. This is just two generations from, from those who had been enslaved in Egypt and that God did all these miracles of the plagues of Egypt. Grandma and Grandpa walked through the Red Sea on dry land. Two generations after that, we don't want nothing to do with them. He had bought, they, they forsook the Lord their God, their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger. And God's like, I notice that matters. And goes on and says, because they forsook him and served Baal and Ashtoreth, two different pagan gods in Canaan. They're like, nah, not, I, we don't want grandma and grandpa's faith. And they forsook it. And then it goes on and it says, 
In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. God's like, okay, if you don't want anything to do with me, I'm not going to force my love upon you. If that's the way you want it, that's the way you have it. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. And it goes on and it says, Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. And they were in great distress. We're in this cycle now, this cycle of rebellion. And then we find retribution. And it goes on and it says, Then the Lord raised up judges. Again, think of that in terms of heroes, a deliverer. Because he still loved them even when all that was going on. He's like, I, I just can't let you just completely destroy yourselves. And so he raised up a hero, a deliverer, who saved them out of the hands of the raiders. Watch. It goes on. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They repented. They were rescued, and then they went right back into rebellion again. They quickly turned from their ways and their, uh, the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commandments. It goes on and it says, Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as that judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groanings under those who oppressed and afflicted them. And, and so... As long as that judge, that, that hero was alive, it was like everything was fine. But just as soon as they took their last breath, it's like the, all the people of God were like, woohoo! Forget about God. It's party time. And God was like, all right, here we go again. D does this sound like any of our biographies? Not much has changed. And so the book of Judges, yes, it's a historical book, but it actually might be our history, not just theirs. And we can learn from it. Think about it. Just two generations earlier, God wrote with his own finger the Ten Commandments. And just two generations earlier, in Exodus 23, God said this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. He's like, I must be first. When our little girls were growing up, we have three daughters, uh, and, and uh, two of them always shared a room. Well, often, uh, growing up, and, and then they shared a bathroom. <laughs> and uh, if you have a lot of girls, like, it's a whole other thing. And uh, uh, they'd get at each other. I mean, our kids aren't perfect. They'd get at each other. And, and, and I remember Susie and I talking about a strategy. And this was our strategy with our daughters, particularly when they're younger. And, and, and little kids are just mean. They can be mean and nasty. 
and, and, and I remember we talked about this, and then I remember sitting down with one of them in particular, and we asked them this. We said, do you, do you, do you realize that in your heart, it's like your heart is a throne, and, and you're going to have to decide who's on the throne of your heart. Is it you or is it Jesus? And he wants to help you so you don't have to fight with your sisters anymore. You don't have to always start something. But you decide who's on the throne of your heart. And, and, and as we were preparing for this series and I'm talking with the staff and the team about the book of Judges, I just remember that whole idea. Who's on the throne of your heart? Because as I read through the book of Judges, I, I, I just find myself wanting to ask the people, who's on the throne of your heart? But, but then I realize we need to ask ourselves. God said, I have no other gods before me. I must be on the throne of your heart. Not you, Greg. Not your wife. Not your kids. Not your career. Not your earthly possessions. Who's on the throne of your heart? He, he said, I just refuse to share. And, and I think for us, as we apply what we're learning and studying and reading and really beginning in this series, we, we have to begin to identify the false gods in our culture around us. That they say, you just put this first and, and, and worship. Let this be first priority in your life. And everything will be okay. But you know what? It's not okay. We have to choose between a God who saves or gods that enslave us. And so we need to take an honest look at every area of our lives, our marriages, our families, our careers, our possessions, our ambitions, our time. And I think we need to ask two questions. These are hard questions. But depending on how we answer these questions, we'll identify if we actually have someone or something on the throne of our heart rather than God. So let's look at these two questions, and depending on how we answer them, it just might reveal that, that we're serving another God who enslaves us rather than the God who saves us. The first question is this, am I willing to do whatever God says about this area in my life? Am I willing to do whatever, as, as I read the scripture, and, I, and God says, this is how I want you to handle this situation, Greg. Am I willing to do that? Or do I say, I can't. And God says, you mean you won't? Because that's the God you're serving. Am I willing to do whatever God says about this area in my life, no matter what it is? No, no matter what the relationship is, the thing. Am I, whatever God says, am I like, that's where I'm going to go. That's what I'm going to do. 
Or this second question, am I willing to receive whatever God sends in this area? God, I'll serve you. God, I'll put you first. Just as long as you never do that. What is that? That's your functional idol. That's what comes before him. And so here's the, here's the way we identify. If the answer to either one of these questions is no, that's who's on the throne of your life. Am I willing to do whatever God says about this hair? No, not when it comes to my career path. Well, that's, that, there's your God. Not when it comes to this relationship, no way. I, I, I'm too worried that I'm going to lose her. So I know what God says, but, but I just, I can't wait till I'm married. That's who's on the throne of your life. And God said, I have no other gods before me. I, I won't share. Am I willing to receive whatever God sends in this area when God says, I don't want you to have that. I'm taking it away. Are we like Job? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or are we, you messed with what matters to me, God, more than you do. And now it's done between the two of us. Those two questions, depending how we answer those, reveal, is God on the throne of our hearts or is something else? Or someone else? Tim Keller, in his book, actually, about the, on the book of Judges, put it this way, and I think it's so eloquent and so well put. The greatest danger is not atheism, but that we ask God to coexist with our idols. That's the greatest danger. The greatest danger is Jesus plus this. And I'm happy. God, I'm cool with you as long as you don't touch this back here. I'll give you everything, 90% 90 of my life. I'll give you 99% of my life. But boy, you touch that 1%, it's through. We're done. And God says, I'm not going to share the throne with anyone in your life or anything in your life. Here's the third big, big idea in the first two chapters of the book of Judges that we find repeated over and over and over throughout the whole book. Forgetfulness leads to unfaithfulness. We forget so easily, don't we? We, we forget so easily what God has done for us. We, we say we're going to remember. We say like, Man, God, if you never do anything else for me, you've already done enough. And then a year goes by and we're like, why didn't you answer this prayer? And this is a major, major truth that we see all throughout the book of Judges. Forgetfulness leads to unfaithfulness. See, God sees any failure to obey ultimately as a failure to remember what Jesus Christ did for you and for me on the cross. How soon we forget. How soon we forget. 
In Judges chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, because of their disobedience, God is trying to remind them, remind them, remember what I did. I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. He said, remember what I said. Remember what I've done. But then just a few verses later in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it says, and, the, and after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. One generation is all it takes. One generation is all it took. Just one generation that forgot what God had done. Total devastation and destruction. Here's the thing that I, I just kind of hear God saying to me when I'm struggling. As, as I'm reading through and looking at the lives of these people in the book of Judges, just like you, just like me, going through their cycles. He says, listen, Greg, if you can trust me for the forgiveness of your sins for eternity, why can't you trust me in these small little things here on earth? If you trust me that I could take care of you for all time by sending my son Jesus, why, why are you clinging to these temporary things in this life? Putting them ahead of me, letting them have the throne of your heart. Why would you trust God for your eternal salvation but not trust him in your day-to-day -day life? Because forgetfulness leads to unfaithfulness. Not only just concerned about ourselves, what about our children? What about our children's children? Moms, dads, are we sharing the good things that God has done and reminding ourselves and our children and our children's children? Or are we just leaving them on their own to stumble around and find their own way? One generation's all it took. One generation. One generation. Have you committed to obey God fully and completely in every area of your life? Or are you asking God, all right, you're on the throne, but slide over. I want to make room for someone else next to you. I, I just want to put something else on the throne next to you. And God said, I, I don't do that. I won't do that. It doesn't work that way. As you can see, this book of Judges is not some blow the dust off history. We're the same kind of people. And we need to ask those same kind of tough questions. Is Christ on the throne of your heart today? Is he number one? Or is there something? Or is there someone that deep inside you say, 
God, you better not mess with that. Because if you do, you and I are through. Don't be like that. God's saying, put me first. Because if you put someone or something on the throne, ultimately, it will enslave you and destroy you. And you'll turn from me. And that's the, one of the major lessons in the book of Judges. I'm going to ask, would you bow your heads with me right now? Father, Lord, forgive us for consistently being inconsistent. Lord, so easy we do forget. Lord, we say we can't, and you really recognize, and you say, you mean you won't? Lord, help us to remember. Help us to be faithful. As we even study this book and learn, let us learn, Lord, from the lives of these folks that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. And Lord, may we learn the cautionary tale of their lives and never lose sight of how good you still rescued them. But it was after they lost so much and there was so much hurt so much destruction. May we learn. And Lord, may we clear the throne of our hearts for you and you alone that you would be the king seated upon the throne in the center of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.